0: Welcome to another week on Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem show, Sunday Nights. Originally a Zoom interactive platform where we discuss real-life scenarios with real live people.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to tonight's amazing program. Tonight is sheer number 62 with the Let's Get Real program with Coach Menachem bernfeld We welcome you all back. Tonight's gonna to be a really exciting program and I'm looking forward. Again, I wanna first start off always thanking all the people that come on every week um, for helping the platform really grow and explode. All the people that post it on their statuses, on their WhatsApp, and they email it around and they let people know about it. We really appreciate it. And as I always say, try to come on every week if you can to let people know about it. It's every Sunday night, 10 o'clock This this Zoom ID. For well, those who are watching the replay of this on YouTube, please click on the subscribe button to Coach Menachem's channel and hit the like button. Like I always say every week, so me and Menachem can make millions of dollars on the program. We really appreciate it. I'd like to thank all our advertising sponsors for promoting us, the Lakewood Scoop over here in Lakewood. A special thank you to Robbie and Khazak. for Khazak always is behind the program, always helps us get amazing speakers. Really thank you, Robbie. We love you. And a special thank you to Chayla Kaufman and Shmuel Summer from JCN for always promoting us on all the Jewish platforms. We really appreciate it. Again, for anybody who's the first time here tonight, um, it's every Sunday night at 10 o'clock on the Zoom ID, we have different Abonim, different therapists, different topics, and it's amazing. Next week, 7-11, we're gonna have, again, for round two, the B'shala Moshe is gonna be discussing a Betochen, as he usually does, in today's crazy times. Um, and, you know, it's right before Tisha so he's gonna tell us exactly what Mashiach comes, what to do. So we have to be the next week, so we should really have the exact Mahalach uh, down path. It should be an amazing program please come. Um, he had a whole year to prepare for it. So it's gonna be an amazing show. Tonight, we have the schools of having two of the most prominent therapists, I would say pretty much in the community in clients role. And not only are they amazing, but they're also related to each other, their husband and wife, Dr. Tamar Proman and Dr. Kiefer Proman to join us both here together. They're doing this is this is a first for them. You know, there's only you use me and my wife presenting. But this week, we're going to give it to this couple to present to give it over. So we're looking forward and actually Dr. Kiva was on a year ago and it was an amazing program, got tremendous feedback. So I said Dr. Kiva came and he was good, but now please bring your better half so we can have even a better program and bring it up a notch. And uh, again, thank you for coming on tonight. Tonight's really an open topic, we have a lot to discuss. It's really open to a lot of things, but let's start off first with our coach, Coach Menachem Berenfeld. Open it up for the island.
0: Thank you very much Osha, for the introduction. Welcome everyone to Let's Get Real with Coach Menachem we're up to a number 62. And Hashem should help us continue to help. Kalal Yisrael. Last time we sat with Dr. Akiva on the show, it was pretty vulnerable. It was a vulnerable experience. And it was the, the impact was tremendous. There's, there's something to it. When somebody can open up and be vulnerable, people feel they can relate. They, they, there's something that they can listen to. And then it, it's easier for them to apply it versus when you hear it from a Rosh Hashiva, from a Rebbe, from from somebody up there when you're listening to the concepts, but you feel like they're up there or even a therapist. But when they when there's something vulnerable, there's something that, that you can relate to. And I remember the emails that we got people walked away feeling like this is real. You know, you're talking to a real person, real struggles, which we all have, and how to navigate, how to go through all of these things. So, Bar Hashem, we had many topics the past few weeks, a lot of discussions on the show, uh, between Shalom Bayez, divorce, we had Chinuch, a lot of trauma, childhood trauma, and people are trying to figure out, does, does everybody need therapy or not? And there's something that comes up. Afterward, people trying to figure out who they should go to, where they should start. Many have been. It didn't work out. So I think it was a good idea that we can actually sit into the therapy room with the therapists on both both perspectives for the men and for the women so we can get a little bit of a picture of a glimpse of what goes on in the room. From the therapist's point of view and what he sees from uh, the effects that it has on the clients. So we're looking forward to tonight. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Coach Vanakhan. It was a beautiful opening. Okay, let's get an overview of tonight's share. Tonight's share festival is sponsored by Recovery at the Crossroads. Recovery at the Crossroads is the only kosher inpatient treatment center in the Tri-State area. They are a licensed co-occurring treatment facility, which means they are licensed to not only treat Substance abuse, but also all the other underlying mental conditions such as anxiety, depression, and trauma. They've been working for 15 plus years in the firm community, and have helped many families they put tremendous effort in working together with the families. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, feel free to reach out to them at 888-466-5950. That's 888-466-5950. Tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about, from all the years of experience that Dr. Keev and Dr. Tamar have. For being therapists, PhD, PsyD, they have all the all the degrees, and how many clients they sat with, and how many community issues they deal with. So we're gonna get some perspectives, and it's really an open conversation discussing happiness, connection, marriage. It's really open. It's really open platform tonight. So we're not really focusing on one thing, but feel free, you know, to text questions to Usher Parnas over here on the screen, and of course, live questions go first. We're gonna open up first with Dr. Akiva will open up followed by his wife, Dr. Tamar. So I'll read Dr. Akiva's very short bio because we don't have enough time to read the whole thing. Dr. Akiva Perlman, PhD, is an international speaker on topics of abuse, addiction, trauma. He has educated more than 250 from social workers from community and currently serving as professor at whatever, Westbrook School of Social Work. I don't know if he's still there anymore. Dr. Perlman is a clinical director of ODA's Wellness Institute, a clinic which serves the Hasidic community in Williamsburg. He maintains a small practice in Fresh Meadows where he resides with his wife Tamar and children. Thank
2: you. Thank you so much, guys, for this opportunity. It's uh, I can't tell you what it was like last time. Uh, it was a very vulnerable experience for me, and I certainly walked away with a, a vulnerable hangover, as Brene Brown kind of calls it. You walk away with this sense of, um, am I am I still myself? You know, did I lose part of my being in that experience? Um, and then. It takes a few minutes to sort of recollect yourself, but then getting the feedback from people um, and hearing that somehow, you know, the objective of trying to reach people worked, at least for some. Um, I still believe that my, my favorite comment, it's always interesting that when you you do something and it has some form of meaning, and there's that one comment um, that you notice more so than anything else, was I was being very vulnerable. I was talking about myself as opposed to speaking about other people, and maybe tonight as well, just a little bit. Um, and there was one person, like in the comments saying he, this guy really needs to go to therapy, <laughs> and I completely agreed with her. Um, and I only know as a female because it was because of her name, uh, I was sort of identified. Um, but it was a, it was one of those moments, like you sort of, you, you take it with you. And I think that this, this forum, of all places where I've had the opportunity um, and privilege to be a part of it, like this forum, to me most resembles like the classroom like a place that is, where, which is a place I feel a lot more comfortable than in many other places in the world, a place where there's honesty and openness and dialogue and, and yearning and seeking of that truth. And, and I'm looking at the screen before me and I, I see some of the, the wonderful people I've, I've been privileged and honored to journey with, um, the people who have contributed to my life in immeasurable ways. Um, but the truth is to have an opportunity. Um, my wife and I um, have dedicated really our lives to the pursuit of trying to bring some degree of comfort and healing into the world, uh, into our community. Uh, I think it's the thing that we've noticed about each other very early on in our relationship. Um, but for the last uh, 18 years, we've done it in a parallel type of way where my wife is doing her work and I'm doing mine and they very rarely cross paths. Um, so when my wife is you know, the, the key speaker at a Shabbaton, um, I'm the guy who could sort of disappear into the background And it happens the other way as well. So to have an opportunity to speak beside her is of the greatest honors in my life. Um, To to speak with someone who I I value so deeply um, and who you'll have an opportunity to hear from and you'll you'll get a sense as to why um, I value her so deeply. Um, But again, to be here, to be in this space with the rest of you uh, is just a great, great honor. Um, Your work is holy, it's invaluable. Uh, Before everyone else got on, Uh, Asher and and Coach Menachem were speaking about, you know, the amount of people that have, through this program, through this forum, ultimately made their way into therapy, or forget about therapy itself, they've made their way into some form of healing journey, um, as a result of the sheer openness that exists in this space. And so, tremendous, Yashar Koach to everyone involved in this program. Um, It is just beautiful what you do. Uh, We were listening to, to the series that you have on divorce um, and, and we enjoy it thoroughly, uh, just just listening to, to the wisdom that's being passed down. So tonight, um, we're thinking about what, what could we speak about. And I think it is going to cover like many topics, to be quite honest. It's not so defined where it's only about marriage or only about trauma. It's going to be a collection of, of everything, and maybe it's about the festivities of the evening just a few minutes ago right outside my window um, with all these fireworks going off. So it's, it's a lighter evening. Um, uh, so we're going to try to keep it that way. So just to jump on in one of the most common questions, um, that I get as a therapist, uh, not only from, from clients, from people and friends and colleagues, um, but, but really from everyone is how do you manage to sit and listen to suffering and pain all day? Like, how do you survive that? How is that something that you choose to literally Willingly, and and, I'm, and and these people are not the only people who ask this question. Some of the greatest therapists ever have asked that question. Uh, James Bugenthal asked that question. or Rollo May asked that question. Rollo May even took time out of the profession, saying, "I'm not sure why I'm here to begin with, and it might be too overwhelming. I want to I want to take a pause and potentially come back when it's when it feels like a choice." Um, and and it's a very profound question, and and it makes sense because it's speaking about. The reality, which is when you're when you're sitting in the room with other people who have who've lived a life that's been filled with a lot of pain. Obviously, it means a lot to you. And the truth is, if it doesn't mean a lot to you and if it isn't heavy and you aren't taking it home with you, then you're probably not doing your work very well. So you have to willingly choose to say, let me take this with me, because if I'm not taking it with me, then the person who is sharing their lives with me in such a meaningful way may not matter so much to me and I want it to matter. I want the suffering of the people that I'm, I'm privileged to spend time with. I want it to, to affect me, and to change me. Um, so we talk about that, that question of where, how do you manage to do it? I want to share a story. Some of you may be familiar with Rav Usher Wade. Rav Usher Wade was a, uh, a convert, um, and he, he was studying to be a priest. He was actually in the, uh, um, I forget the name of the place, but he was studying in one of the top you know, uh, environments to study to become a priest. I'm not overwhelmingly familiar with their institutions. Um, and he was studying the, the, the Christians, the Catholic Church's response to the Holocaust. And where were they? And how did they permit this to happen underneath their nose? And, and like, we're, we're, they're talking about a religion that's filled with love and care and respect. And, and here you are, you have 6 million Jews who are being slaughtered under your nose. And they didn't really say boo. And obviously, we've received an apology since then. But to him, he sort of turned away from from that religion and joined Yiddishkeit because he started studying it and saw the beauty in it, the beauty that we all see. And I went, I was in Eretz Yisrael for four years, and it was the one thing that I just avoided. I was terrified of going to Yad Vashem. I was terrified of going to the Holocaust Museum, which was the museum that he would give tours with. So I remember calling my mother right before I was gonna go back to America. And I was talking about my resistance to going. I don't wanna go, I feel like I have to go. It's my mandate, it's my responsibility. But every time I go there, it just, it it brings me down and I I start asking all these questions that I'd rather not have to live with. Um, and, And the conclusion of that conversation was you still need to go. Yes, it will introduce a crisis. And yes, it will be hard for you to internalize. But you need to go anyway, because these, this is your people. And you need to, if they're suffering, you need to suffer alongside them. And I fully agreed. So I did my research. I went to the, to the museum. And I sought out the best person to give the Torah, which was Rav Usher Wade. And, and I asked him at the end of this Torah, which was painful and brutal and, and honest and real. Um, but I asked him at the end the same question that people ask me on a regular basis and ask my wife as well and all the therapists in the room. Um, how do you, I said, how do you manage to do this? Because as he was completing this tour, he was starting a new one. How do you manage to go, you know, three, four times a day through these very, very dark halls? And he turned to me and he said, with like a very wise smile, and he said, if you've noticed, as we were making our way through the museum, everyone that I was taking on this tour was looking back at the past. They were looking at the exhibits. They were observing what happened in the past. And I I was facing you. I was facing the group that I was, jour- that was journeying through this, uh, this very dark corridor. Um, and to me, my experience every single time I do this is look at our survival. Look at the fact that we're still here. Look at the fact that we as a nation have survived and we're making our way through. Yes, we're limping and yes, we're struggling, but we've survived as a people. And to me, that's always like the idea that resonates the most when you think about therapy that people look at it the wrong way. They're asking the wrong question. They're asking the question I asked Usher Wade without any really clear perspective. And they're asking the question of how is it possible that you're not taken down by the pain, as opposed to asking how is it possible that you're not completely transformed by the courage of the people that you have an opportunity to sit with, which is the ultimate truth. There was a wonderful story. Uh, this is a Yalom story for those who know from my class. I, I love Yalom's work. Um, speaking about some of his tales and, and how they've affected us as, as a people. And so Irving Allen was a, a existential humanistic analyst, if, you, if that's a fair way of describing him. And he once was studying, he had a fellowship at the Tavistock Clinic. The Tavistock Clinic, for those who aren't familiar, was like a, the world's most famous clinic. It's out in London and you had literally, you know, Harry Stack Sullivan, you had all the great analysts that came from that part of the world, all practice in this one place. And to be asked to join there for a year, a fellowship, is a great honor. It's one of the greatest honors therapists could have. And so he's there visiting for the year, and he's witnessing a particular group that's been around for 15 years. It's an analyst group, a group of of adults who are in a trauma group together. And they were talking about they were finally uh, breaking up after 15 years of being together because the analyst, the therapist, was retiring. And uh, they're all sitting there in this last meeting and Yalom was observing, he was the fellow observing this final meeting. And they're all going around the room talking about how much everyone changed. And they say, you, you you know, Sarah, you changed so much and you John, you changed so much. And it became apparent at a certain point that the only person who didn't change in that room was this analyst, was this therapist. And everyone came to that conclusion pretty unanimously where they all kind of said to one another, the one stable individual in this room, the one who's remained stagnant for the last 15 years, the one who's remained predictable and the same has been this analyst. And the analyst kind of smiled and turned to Yalom who was this fellow, this newer therapist. And he said to him with pride, with a smile on his face, and that my son is how you do therapy. And what he was conveying to him is that when you do therapy, you're supposed to remain somewhat impartial. And Yalam sort of talks about his experience of that moment. And he says, like the great sadness that he felt that here he was surrounded by all these people that managed to grow for 15 years together as a group. They grew, they managed to become bigger, better people. And here was this analyst witnessing all of that for 15 years, witnessing growth and aspiration and, and transformation, yet he wasn't affected by it. He didn't become a bigger or better person as a result of it, he remained the same. And the speaks about the great sadness of that, the tragedy of that moment. How is it possible to be so close to individuals who are braver than you, who are taking greater steps than you could ever imagine in your life and not be affected by that? And that's my experience. My experience of sitting with pain all day is that these are people who have the courage, number one, to even show up, to show up to an office and say, you know what, things aren't working so well for me and I, I'd like to work through it. I'd like to become a better version of myself potentially the best version of myself and to not be affected by that you'd have to be distant and cold and there has to be something not quite right. So um, I want to speak a little bit about what we talk about you know a little bit about trauma and 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 how it affects us and how it ultimately makes its way into relationships and now I'm going to turn it over to my wife. But I think we're, we're all quite familiar. I I've, I've followed this program and, and the people who speak about trauma have a really beautiful, deep understanding of it. Um, so I imagine most of the listeners as well, like are walking around with a lot of complexity and understanding of, of what it actually looks like. But I just want to speak about few, a few small ideas and share some of the stories that have made its way into my space that I, you know, I'm willing, obviously, all the information has been changed so we can't identify these people. But the essence, the core of, of the story remains true and remains alive. Um, but there are a few effects that I want to speak about with trauma, that there, there are many that we're affected by, but there are a few that seemingly exist uh, consistently, pervasively through many people. Um, and they, to me, represent the essence of what we're trying to overcome when we make our, in, when we make our way into some form of healing work. Um, when one is treated without love, one is not seen for, for the person that they are, the individual that they are. Um, They're not treated with a sense of care. You know, you don't have to look very far to to find the literature to describe what this means. The difference between looking at a child and seeing that child as a gift that's been given to you. so You can nurture them so that they could become the best version of themselves. That's our job as parents. It's not to look at them the other way, which is basically a reflection of ourselves. We look at them and we see in their eyes our own reflection and that they act in a way they become someone that we would ultimately make us proud as a result of them becoming someone and leaning into the the person that they could be that would make them feel whole. We all understand the difference between those two different pathways. Um, But when a person is, is treated in a way where they're not seen as a self, they're not seen as an individual, they're not seen and treated with the care that they deserve, they're ultimately left with a sense, which is the point number one I wanna speak about, Is that I am not good enough, which means nothing to do with actions, it has nothing to do with the way they actually behave, it has to do with the essence of their being, the very fabric, the nature of who they are as people, that these are people who walk around with a sense that me as an individual is simply not good enough. There's a a beautiful man that I've been honored to, to spend several years with in therapy um, where he we journeyed together, which is the way therapy should really be. Um, you know, there's no. It would be very easy. I was just saying before I had on top of the bookcase, I had a few extra sheets, and uh, and I took it off before we started this little uh, this get together because it looked a little messy. And I was telling uh, Coach Menachem and Usher, I said those are all my diplomas from over over the years. And many therapists hang them in their office, and I have no judgment towards that. They've worked really hard to get these degrees. Um, but to me, sitting in an office in a space with another human being, I don't want to present as I'm resolved and you're the one with the problems, so follow my lead and you're going to be okay. I rather want to create a space where we're both fellow travelers um, because I, I possess the same degree of struggle as, as the other people in the world. That's just the nature of, of being alive. Um, and, and yes, you'd like to... To learn about the wisdom the offer the world has to offer about healing and comfort. But at the core, at the essence, human beings were fragile, we're we're limited, we struggle, and all we could do is try to find people that we could share that struggle with, that we could be alive with them. So we're no longer alone in our own, you know, little world. So there was this one this one client that comes to mind um, who comes from a prominent rabbinic family and was very much raised by the needs, I don't think they were very fully resolved, his parents, um, that he, they really needed their children to be very put together. And I think there is a demand. Um, I could share many stories that we have had where you kind of walk into a certain environment and you're the professionals. So there's an added demand that you place upon your children for them to act really resolved and everything is okay, which is unfair. It's unfair of us that that's a demand that we place on them. When we work on it, we, we try our best to permit them to simply be as, as human beings, as children, as kids. Um, but these parents, because they were in this role of like rabbinic authority, they, they placed this demand consciously, unconsciously on their children to really be perfect. That was the reality. To, in every situation that they were placed to be flexible and malleable and, and, and be comfortable and communicate with anybody, anyone in their shul they could get along with all of, all of the above. Um, which is something that when we think about it, we take a step back to place such a demand on a child is not quite right, uh, because it doesn't permit them to actually live their childhood. It places them in a position where they now need to be an adult well before they're even capable of becoming an adult. And that was what he ultimately lived with. Um, And he needed to forsake his basic needs, his basic child desires in order to satisfy the demands that his parents placed upon him. And ultimately what he lives with today as an adult, is someone who does not accept and lean into himself, he's someone who implicitly, the same way he was rejected by others, especially the primary people in his life, he was never really given a chance to be seen as an individual, then he in turn does the same to himself. But I think even more tragically, he does the same for his spouse. That need for for him for his own desire to, to kind of present as being resolved and perfect has now been transmitted to her as well, and I think we could all imagine what that looks like in a marriage when you're, the request, the demand that you place on the person that you're married with is that they are perfect all the time and they do it right all the time. And that if a guest comes over, then everything goes perfectly well, um, as opposed to things being human. Um, and, that's, and that to me comes from the very essential, rea- like the result of, of not being treated with care and respect where a person is sort of left with a sense of, in my in my deepest place, I'm not a good enough for even myself. I'm simply not good enough. So the, the their role, the response to that is, let me act good enough. Let me pretend like I'm good enough. Let me falsify my existence because at least then people are gonna like me. At least then people are gonna respond to me positively. And that will, for the moment, make me feel whole. For the moment, it'll make me feel alive. And that is, of the most painful experiences we have because it's a sheer rejection of humanity. Um, I don't want to take too much time. There's another idea and there's just three that I wanted to focus on that number two, I will never be loved if I were truly known. Now hold on to that. Think about it for a second, you know, to live with, to live with a feeling, an overall sense that if the other person, that any person I'm in a relationship with, especially close relationships, if this person truly knew who I was as a human being, they would outright reject me, Um, which is a feeling that almost every individual I've worked with who really suffers with any form of trauma or rejection, they actually live with that sense that I cannot be really known to this individual because I will ultimately be rejected. Um, There was a a case recently that we were working with at the clinic, the uh, ODA, the Wellness Center, the Wellness Institute, where there was a man, a very tender, gentle soul um, in his early forties. And he has a family, he's working, he's, he's got a, a wonderful job that he has. And he's a, he's, a, he's a great member of our society, very connected to Hashem, he's, he's a beautiful person. And in his childhood, he had uh, several instances, several events um, of sexual abuse that he experienced by an older bachler in his yeshiva. And he carried that secret, he carried the weight of that aside from the pain of it for years. And as he made his way into therapy, it was recommended at a certain point that why not share this experience with your spouse? Let her know about your life. Let her know about who you are and what your experience is. Um, and his initial reaction to that was, are you crazy? You know, and that's actually when they called me into the session. He actually requested. He said, can we, can we speak to, to, to Akiva Perlman and, and let's, 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 let's see what he says about it. I walk into the room and I'm like, absolutely the greatest gift you could give yourself. Forget about your wife. Forget about the rest of your life. The greatest gift you could give to yourself is the gift of freedom, where you no longer need to live a falsified existence, one that is filled with silence and shame, but rather you can now be free. See what it's like. And I remember a few weeks later, they were scheduled, his wife was scheduled to come into session with him, and he he called me early in the morning. He said, I couldn't wait to get, you know, to have my wife come into the session so we could do this with the therapist. And I did it myself. And he was a 40 year old man who suffered virtually every day of his life. And if I could describe to you the smile on his face, he was like a little child who discovered sugar for the first time. And to me, the way I understood it was he opened up a door of hope, he opened up a door of potential that he was no longer facing a future where forever I needed to live with a sense of I will never be ever loved if I was really known for who I am. And now he began to challenge that idea. Now the world of connection, the world of of the absence of loneliness started to open up for him. And finally, that I will secure love by my actions, not by my actual being. And I think as you can see, all of these are kind of interrelated that for a person who's been sort of deprived of this sense of being in self, that to them they internalize a message of I'm only gonna be loved when I do things well, when my actions, the things that emanate from me are positive and seen as good, that's when I'm going to be loved. But the essence of who I am is something that's going to be rejected. And I think it's, I hope it's okay if I say this, and it's a little bit vulnerable to say, especially in this forum, but I guess that's why we're here. You know, I find it one of my missions is to share the stories of the people that have gifted me with their story. And any opportunity that I have to share their experience, um, I see it as a, a positive one because there's nothing worse than, than living in, in, in with hurt and pain. And then on, on top of that, you're living with loneliness. So if there's a way that I could express their story, I'd like to, but this is not their story. I guess it's our story. It's a collective story. There's a story of me that when you're talking about being believing that you're only gonna be loved by your actions and not who you are as a person is a real result of this deprivation. And really one of the greatest gifts I believe that probably the greatest gift, aside from our children and aside from virtually everything else, was I don't believe, and this is an honest statement, when I, when I got married, I did not believe that I would really be allowed to fully be myself. I was still sort of held by this belief system that I carried, which was so long as I do well, so long as I behave well, so long as I act well then I'm going to, to be able to secure respect and, and love from my wife, um, which is a belief, I think, that many of us live with. And I think one of the greatest gifts that, that my wife gave to me was a sense over time that that's not the case. That's not my reality. That that who I am, and they're interesting, I can only give one story um, that I remember, like this is the Shana Rishona story. I have, oh, no. You know, <laughs> I didn't review this, by the way, with my wife in advance, this little piece, but I probably should have. But I remember that first year where, um, you know, we, we talk about that first year and all the interesting things that emerged during that time. But my wife, uh, she didn't catch me, but I was sitting there reading um, like a really thick book on the pathology of serial killers, which is not something we discussed when we were dating, that I have this strange, <laughs> fascination with serial killers and why did they choose to do things like that? And I remember the feeling of like, oh no, what's gonna happen now? Now my wife knows that I like exploring the world of serial killers. Like this is not gonna go over very well. And I remember she didn't like it. No, I don't think anyone would like the fact that, you know, someone's into serial killers. But the fact was that she accepted it, understood it, appreciated it on some level, even valued it. Valued it from the fact that like, she's married to a curious person and he likes to understand different things. And from that point of view, um, where over time I could live with the sense that who I am as a person could be appreciated and valued, and it's not only related to the idea that it has to be good. Um, and I think all of this kind of boils down to the difference between bad behavior and bad person, where most, most of us, people who've been raised with a sense of comfort and, and, and clarity, they could walk around with a sense of, I feel like a decent person. I do bad things, but I feel like a decent person. As opposed to others, they generally walk around with a sense that who I am is bad, and they need to grapple with that. Um, and the difference between action and essence is very different. And imagine a world, and, and this is where I wanna get to, to the other part of this. You know, We talk about this element, which is really dark and is filled with a lot of suffering, but I don't see it that way. Um, some of the greatest people I know, period, are people who have gone through a lot in their lives. Some of the, I, I would imagine when we, we, if we were all open enough to say, let me talk about our own stories. Some of our personal greatness doesn't come from, you know, the things that we were born with that were strengths, but rather the things that were fractured and a little bit broken. And it, a sense of mission emerged out of that darkness and gave us the ability to connect with others in that place. Um, there's a very common idea called the wounded healer when it comes to therapists basically suggesting that therapists become therapists, not, not out of absolute strength, but because of a transformation of that pain into freedom, um, where they're emerging as people who are uh, looking for, for freedom. Um, but I, I just I want to leave with this story that the um, I, I spent the Shabbos a few weeks ago with a group of people that experienced immeasurable suffering. It's hard to imagine what each one of the stories sounded like. It was a a Shabbaton for for parents who have children who are struggling with Yiddishkeit, who are struggling with at-risk behavior. And if you imagine a a scene like this, several hundred parents coming together, you'd almost imagine it to be one that is filled with despair and like just people who have been broken by life and just beat down by life. And if I were to explain to you that the, the sense of hope the sense of inspiration. Um, I was sitting at a meal with a group of people and and expressing to them like the questions that they had, the thoughts that they had, their sense of mission in the world to to bring a little bit of healing and bring a little light into this world, all as a result of their suffering. And I I, I I asked the group, I said, do you think that any one of you would be engaging in life the way you are, would be as passionate about life the way you are if you hadn't gone through what you're going through? And unanimously one after the next they all responded the same way that it is as a result of this suffering as a result of our pain that we are now in a place where we feel enlightened and we feel like a great sense of connection to ourselves and to others every last one of them also reported that yes our marriage was completely challenged during this time but we found each other and we found each other in a much more profound and a deeper and a more loving meaningful way Um, and that is their description of the of how their suffering has been transformed into something that is profoundly positive positive. and when we look at people who have made a significant difference in the world that have brought healing into the world almost always those individuals are people who arrived at that place not because they simply woke up one day and said i want to share my goodness with everybody else but rather they came from a much different background and they're saying i will i understand this and I have something to share, and I'd like to give it over to everybody else. And healing, in essence, comes from suffering. So when we talk about connection and coming closer to one another, uh, the fact that we've been through things in our lives often provides a great vehicle to to express ourselves in a much more connected way. So now I want to turn it over to, the, to my wife.
1: I'm gonna, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read her bio, if that's first. But okay. was that was a beautiful opening. Thank, Thank you for keeping it under 10 minutes. I really appreciate it. And <laughs> it was great. And I just want to say, Miller is here from Kesha which is an organization which we were there together for Shabbos. Yes. Um, I know as much as you try to like really give that over, it's really hard to give over in words what, what the feeling is with those people. It's a different it's a different level. And um, if anybody is experiencing going through anything, please reach out to Kesha Nazi. G'daliyamal is at Tzaddik. Like, we love him. He's there. And um, let's read Dr. Tamar Perlman Saidi's bio. Yeah. Dr. Tamar Proman is a licensed clinical uh, psychologist who has been working primarily with women and couples framed within the Torah, text, and Hashgatah. Dr. Proman also lectures on various topics, including attachment and child raising, marriage and emotional regulation, and self-actualization. She also runs topic-focused series, such as Enhanced Marriage, Mindful Dating, and Emotional Regulation. These groups provided women with support and perspective on issues related to relationships and dealing with internal and external stressors. Dr. Perlman also teaches Kalas as an opportunity to connect and give over spiritual and psychological viewpoint on marriage, spirituality, and intellectually curious, but not observant woman as well. I just want to say one thing before she starts. Dr. Tamara does not usually speak to men, but she gracefully, after being asked multiple times, decides she will open the form. So, Dr. Tamara, the floor is yours.
3: Thank you very much. It's
4: such an opportunity to give over, like my husband said from the from the stories and from the experiences that we've had and to be able to to share it in such a beautiful form for sure whatever happens here in this form would not have happened without it so something new is happening here and that is it's powerful to be part and it's humbling to be part of thatness and i think the all the people behind the scenes and on the scenes too, to to um, uh, have created this possibility and it is like you had said, um, a, a real honor to present alongside my husband. And I just want to tell you that sometimes when my husband starts to say a, like something about a, at a Shabbos table, and and one of the kids will ask, "Who who is that? Who is who is that?" And then another kid will say, "Oh, it's another beautiful man." So what my husband says, he really means. He actually really loves the people he works with. And I understand it because so do I. I really do love the people I get to work with. I was actually thinking about when you were saying that um, the opportunity of being able to share yourself and be known to the other in a marriage. And I was wondering if people may have thought in the room, well, you have to get lucky for that. You know, you have to get lucky and marry the right person for that, right? And it happens to be that this was what I did my dissertation on when I was in grad school. Um, the question was what contributes to marital satisfaction? You know, it had all these little details, X amount of years after marriage with this many kids only because you have, that's what you have to do with research. It has to be directive in order for it to, um, to be practical and real. And that was one of my questions is those that had a higher level of happiness, is it because they felt that they were lucky with who they married? Or is it because they feel that they had something to do with what's happening in their relationship? And the answer, which almost is counterintuitive, but if you really think about it, is actually what makes sense, is that those that had a higher level of marital satisfaction were those that believed that they had something to do with it that they actually are the ones that have an impact on that marriage not that they just got lucky with who they married that is basically the main point of what the, the main angle you know the main angle of what I wanted to bring bring in today i work only with women and couples and what i find is when a woman comes into the office and she sits in front of me. Sometimes there is a pain that she wants healing from, some relief that she's seeking. But most of the time, the the basic language is, how do I do what I'm already doing better? I feel stuck. Women are hardworking creatures. And I know so are men. This is not about that. But women work hard on their relationships. They are relational, very much so. So are men but women have a very relational language. I, I, I almost never have a first session with a woman that doesn't talk about her husband, her child, her mother, her sister, her friend, all within the same 50 minutes. But what brings a woman into the office a lot of the times is a sense of all of these relationships really matter to me. And intellectually, I know how to what the right thing is. I go to the lectures, I listen, I read the books. I I know, I could tell you, I could tell you. And I believe them, they do, they do know. But I feel stuck. I don't feel like I'm moving. I don't feel like, you know, it depends on where they're at in their development. They'll either either say, I don't know how to make my husband different or I don't know how to be a better wife. That's a little bit of a further along. You saved 20 sessions right there. If you could say, I don't know how to be a better wife. You've saved yourself a lot of time and money. Um, than to say, I don't know how to make my husband better. Or I don't, I feel disempowered with my kids. You know, again, either it's my kids, I don't know why my kids are so crazy. My kids are extra crazy. My kids are extra hard. Or I feel disempowered as a mother. I don't know how to be how to be the mother I want to be. I feel terrible about my mothering 90% of the time. And also with emotions. I, I, I could tell you that if I were to ask, every woman in her first session, like, do you want to just get rid of all your emotions? I feel like most of them would say yes. Uh, my emotions get me into trouble. I have a hard time. I make mistakes because of them. I am too this. I'm too sensitive. I'm too, uh, I'm too something. I, I, I don't have a handle on it. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, as you're speaking about seeing the, the power in the other person, I know, that if I'm sitting in front of somebody and I don't like them, and I don't trust that they could be they could be in a better place, then I'll give it another session sometimes. Sometimes I'm consulted consult to see what's going on there. But I won't be able, thankfully, this doesn't happen a lot at all, uh, because people are powerful and people are beautiful. And it's most of the time pretty easy to see that. But if I trust, that they have a self that's there, that is what they're seeking, then I won't be able to help them get there. So a huge part is in trusting and believing and in the individual connecting to that higher self that's already inside her. But there's a huge piece here. Sometimes they will say, oh, I know I'm, I can be better. But that I know I can be better sometimes haunts them. It's like what screams at them as they are screaming at their kid. Oh, you know you could be better. It's what screams at them as they say that line to their husband that they regret twenty seconds later. That's that higher self doesn't help them often, but haunts them and shames them, and doesn't end up. They don't end up working well together. You know, one of my favorites svarim to learn is Rav Moshe Weinberger's um, svarim on Tshuva. Um, where he talks about Rav Cook's approach to tshuva. And I, um, I'm sure there are many people in this room that are beyond more learned than I am. But if I may quote, uh, if I may just reference a piece that part of what I understand as Rav Cook's approach to tshuva is recognizing every tiny movement that you make as a person recognizing and stopping there is a pause that he talks about and internalizing that change and then moving on to the next step. Women have a very hard time with this. They just have this part and then the part that could they could be later on but anything in between is very hard to internalize. So a lot of what happens in therapy is the women in front of me becoming more empowered and aware of themselves, of who they are, of having a self that already has impact. They don't realize the impact they already have. And number two, that they can make changes and they can have movement and that they recognize that movement. Often I feel like I'm like just the witness to their movements, I pause and I say, just last week you were talking about it. You can't sit in front of your son and have a 5-minute conversation. You took him out to dinner and you sat together with him for an hour. And it's like, oh, but that's nothing. Again, that's that voice that's like, oh, you could do better than that. You could you should do this every week with him. But it's like I end up being that witness of like that is something let's pause, let's internalize. So it's almost this emergence of the self where they stop talking about everybody else and how They're victim to their adolescent child and they're victim to their not listening husband. And they become a self. And I felt a self that is a growing self, a self that has impact already. I remember in one of like, it's sometimes those last three seconds of a session, you know, uh, when one of my clients was just saying, can you just quickly give me a referral for my son? You know, this and this, like, as she's walking out, I know you already got buzzed in by another, by your next client and and then I you know a lot of times in those moments it's hard to decide what to do but I said why don't you talk to him this week till we think about a referral and she said what do you mean I said you know in the five minutes that you can give him as a mother are a lot more powerful many times you know there are exceptions than the 20 hours that he can get from any therapist And I remember she just paused and she was just crying on her way out. And she says like, Oh, I have impact. I am a mother. What I do has an impact. So I would say that a lot of the, a lot of the movement towards happiness with the women and the couples that I work with is in women developing a relationship with themselves and having more of a self in the room and The more of a, and of course you need support to do this. You need support because having a self um, and changing that self hurts because change hurts even change. Robinson Heller Gottlieb who is my teacher. Um, She always says even good change hurts because shedding parts of us that belong to us that even we don't want anymore, it hurts to shed them. So of course you need support And you need love, you need affirmation, but um, you need a self. And it's this emergence of growing into a self and learning how to be alone and learning how to be a person that helps the women eventually be better in relationships and have better connections. The more you know how to be alone, the less lonely you will be. The more you know, and you're not afraid of being with yourself, the better you'll be for the other. If you can't ever be with your own self, how are you ever gonna be there for your spouse? If you, you know, as a mother, beginning of mothering is complete attachment, you're completely enough for the baby. You, you have to do nothing other than, your baby just needs you as a mother, basically. You are enough. But as your child grows, you become less and less enough. And you feel less and less enough. And the separation, becomes, you know, moves from physical to emotional to spiritual. There's more and more team-tum that the person has to do to create room for the other to grow. That hurts. If you don't have a self that can soothe the self, that can stand on your own feet, you will use your child to soothe the hurt of your separation. And you will limit the way that your child can grow. So it is this... It is this... Um, connection to self and emergence of self that cre- that makes you able to create connections and have happiness. And one piece I just wanna end with, um, is that like you were saying, this is something that, you know, people say time heals. And I think obviously to some degree time does heal. There's the Shiva process and the mourning process that there is in, in, um, in the Torah and, but time doesn't, it's not only time that heals you know it's sometimes if you're angry and you know they say take five minutes but you can come back after those five minutes if you don't use them correctly and be angrier if you indulge in your angry thoughts and I can't believe he did this and his mother and this then you will come back angrier it's you need to seek this healing you need to seek seek this these connections this growth this shedding of parts that are in the way of you and your children you and your spouse you and and it could be very daunting. You could say, like, I really don't feel like I can get there. I remember when I started trauma work, I was extremely afraid to do it. And rightfully so, I understood the fragility of it. I understood how, you know, I'm entering spaces that are are really sacred. And if I mess up, it's like a real, first of all, loss of opportunity. And I could create more hurt. It's I'm just a person. I, I was very afraid, very afraid. And um, I remember we were sitting outside on these two folding chairs with Roberts and Heller at the time, Robertson Gottlieb right now. And I told this to Robertson Heller. I said, Roberts and Heller, I feel very small. I feel very small to do this trauma work. And the conscious part of me, um, even, it, I was able to be somewhat honest with myself and for sure there were layers of the unconscious part of me wanted to hear her say, but I know you for many years Tamar, I know you for 20 years, you're great, you're going to do great, you're going to be a great trauma therapist, you are not small, except she said the exact opposite, she said you are very small, you're just the size you need to be in order to do this work. The minute you start to think that this is about you, is the time that you take a step back and that has been the lens that has taught me how to, has grounded me in how to do work, I can tell you that it doesn't make sense a lot of times why the healing happens. Someone can come in and they are a victim. They are real victims to attachment trauma, parental trauma, to sexual trauma, to uh, to um, marital trauma, to all kinds of traumas. They're real victims. But I can tell you that someone can be a victim and be victimized but no happy person remains a victim. A happy person is one that moves outside towards moving outside of victimhood into empowerment. But how does it happen? And I can tell you that I have learned this throughout the years. And like you were saying, that the people are brave, the healing is within them. And just like a surgeon probably can't explain why you put a knife to something and something is removed. And then the person then lives for another 20 years, you could explain it, but it doesn't, you can explain it in terms of medicine, but it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually express how life continues. Psychology doesn't cause healing. Psychology explains healing. Hashem causes the healing. We can explain healing with the language of psychology. But psychology is not what accounts for the healing. The healing is the space between the therapist and the person, and within that person, and Hashem does the healing. And I know I work with many women of different spectrums of their relationship with Hashem, but I can tell you that I've never, never met one that doesn't have a relationship with Hashem on some level, no matter what her external expression of that is. Is. So that's just something I want to give over to you is that as impossible as it seems to our even psychological minds, it will remain impossible to us. That's not our job to make it possible. Our job is to move towards, we need to move towards that healing. We need to seek the connections. We need to seek them because it's comfortable to remain the same and not change but that the healing ultimately is not from within us it's from it comes towards us um thank you so much for this for this opportunity and we're open to questions
0: okay um uh, thank you very much it was very powerful osha slipped off he'll be back in a few minutes <laughs> and when he comes back we will take a poll that we prepared to see the audience um the perspective so they'll have the questions when he comes back But for now, uh, Akiva, doctor and doctor, if you're ready for a question, um, let me read to you the first question that we got. So I've been doing soul searching for a while and read many books. I know the concepts, but I still seem to have difficulty feeling happy with myself. All my relationships are pretty much superficial, not really deep connections. I don't have deep connections, what can I do? Where can I start?
3: So
4: you already started.
0: <laughs> Beautiful. You already started. I, uh,
2: I I just want to pick up on one thing that the questioner was just mentioning. You know, healing and, and process is not about the mind, it's not about the intellect. It's very possible. Freud speaks about the intellect being of the most profound defense mechanisms that we have access to altogether. Most of the time we get lost in our intellect. Um, Our intellect is profoundly removed from our soul, from our spirit, from our emotion. And when you start attempting to approach healing from an intellectual perspective, which is through knowledge and let me, if I only figure this out, if I only somehow discover the thing, you know, there was a a wonderful, uh, an analyst in New York, her name was Lillian Rubin, short a wonderful book. Uh, called The Man with a Beautiful Voice. She wrote several books, but this one book I really appreciated of hers. And, and she was speaking about the, the experience of healing. And he said that, that, that people spend lots and lots of time trying to access these aha moments in therapy. And I know for myself, I was showing my class the other day, like remembering the first time that a client cried in my office and how like I was in, I was in the moment and I was with this individual And I cried alongside this individual. Um, But there was another part of me that was far removed from the room, which was super, super excited by the fact that someone was crying in my office. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Like you kind of you see this, you know, this is what they talk about, that there's this powerful emotional moment that's taking place in this space. Um, But when we talk about like the emotions of therapy, healing doesn't come from the mind. Healing comes from connection with others by attempting to resolve some of the disconnect that we've, that have, em, that's emerged as a result of the pain that we've experienced. Um, so books are wonderful and I'd keep reading them, but the follow-up statement of, I know what's going on, but all my relationships are superficial. Um, the healing will come from elevating those relationships from a superficial level to a meaningful level. And that requires vulnerability, that requires honesty, that requires risk, And we can never forget the fact that the definition of vulnerability, it it, it includes risk. It's not vulnerable if it's safe. It's not vulnerable if you can't get hurt. And what it sounds like in this question is here's an individual who is looking for healing and connection all the while remaining very safe. And the only way to do this work is to abandon our safety and to take a leap of faith into the unknown with the hope. And, and again, I wouldn't recommend doing this if you don't really trust the individual that you're doing it with, but with the hope that the other will hold us and contain us, and the presence of Hashem and the grace of Hashem will make its way into that space so we could begin to heal. But it doesn't come from the mind, it comes from a different part of our being, and that requires a great, great deal of risk. Um, just, which,
0: to, just to make it more practical, you're saying the person should close the books, enough information. Now, right. now, what should he do? What, like baby steps, where, well, where one, should he start?
2: Well, if you could imagine for a moment, um, a superficial relationship, what does that really mean? It means that I'm present in the room and I'm talking to another person and they're responding to me, but I'm not speaking to them from a meaningful part of myself. I'm speaking to them from what I believe to be the part that they would like to hear, that they would like to receive about me. And we're sort of playing all these games with what does this person really want and if we like them we want to satisfy them so instead of doing that take a moment uh jordan peterson when he is, he was discussing this idea he's a bit of a controversial psychologist says some wonderful things some other things off the beaten path but he was speaking about this notion called congruence which means like a sense of alignment with oneself and he was saying that that the To take a moment, if we were to all do this exercise with ourselves, that to take a pause before we actually open our mouths and respond to something and really ask ourselves, how do I actually feel in this moment? Not how do I really believe I'm supposed to say what other people would like me to say in this moment, but how do I actually feel about myself? And that's an authentic space. Each one of us have that space within us. If this person were to start communicating from that place to the other, they stand a chance at actual actually experiencing connection, as opposed to this very superficial sense of being. Um, so share yourself, your genuine self, not the, the the fraudulent self that you've created over time in order to feel more comfortable with your being.
4: And it could be a piece of it. it doesn't have to be your full self. You know, vulnerability can be in steps. You know, it needs to be some movement beyond that superficial, but it doesn't have to be completely. You know, you could just take yeah. a step towards the vulnerability, just a bit more. Like, pick up the phone and call your daughter and ask her about, like, a real question. Like, oh, who's your favorite? Who's your? What's your favorite class? Or share a story about something that happened to you in the past. Um, you know, it's you know, like it has to come from that place of ruach. You right. know, the the neshama, the nefesh, and the ruach is where the change is. Where that's where the emotions are. Change can only occur if we go through a space of Ruach, and it could be a step, right? It doesn't have to be fully.
2: Yeah, and and it does come with some caution. Like we need to be cautious. I had a client, he said to me, he said, the worst recommendation you ever gave to me was to be vulnerable with my spouse. Yeah, And this guy was right. He was right. And I was wrong. I was wrong because he was not yet in a place within his relationship where he knew how to be vulnerable. And he knew how to receive what the reaction might be if it wasn't perfect in his own mind. Um, So he dove into something that he was not yet ready to to do. And I didn't prevent him from doing that. I didn't give him that that very wise degree of warning, which is, if you're going to attempt to connect with people when you've been disconnected for so many years, take it slow. Don't just jump in. You're going to get hurt.
1: Okay. I'm back. Everybody hears me? Matt, we're good? Yep. Okay, let's take the poll. And then we have a bunch of questions. Let me just tell you a lot of questions came in, a lot about marriage and dating and a lot of questions and trauma and stuff. So the deal with that. We have a lot of blog questions pending. Let's launch a poll just to get everyone up and give the promos two minutes to take a drink. Launch it. Okay, everybody, can, can, you can see it on your screen, you can answer these two questions just to get a feeling. What do you feel is the most important character trait, the most important character trait in a spouse? A, vulnerability, B, honest, C, compassionate, or D, flexible. Choose one of those. Don't worry, we're not going to show it to anybody. Just going to email your therapist right away. And option two, question two, do you think most people suffer from some form of trauma? Yes, no, almost all people have some form of trauma. So yes, the difference between yes and some almost all people is 100% versus 98%. That's the really difference. Okay, so please uh, select one of those options, and then we'll share it with
2: everybody. The, problem, the good polls. This is so cool to watch, like in live and like as it's happening.
1: You, you, you could actually, I'm
2: see not it. gonna say they can't see the answers. Yeah, we it. could see them coming in. Yeah, they're coming in. Yeah, okay. Five, four, three, two,
1: one. Okay, let's share it. Can okay, I will read the answers out loud? Share results. Okay. What do you feel is the most important character trait in a spouse? 14% of people felt it's vulnerability. 35% of people, this is the winner, feel it's honest, to be honest with your spouse. 33% is compassionate, runner up. And only 18% felt to be flexible is the most important important character trait. Second question. Do you think most people suffer from some form of trauma? The winning answer, Dr. Perlman, obviously it's, it's people here Sunday night, right? 45% 45% of people say yes. So everybody feels, this, most people here feel that most people suffer from some form of trauma. 15% say no, and 40% say almost all people. So basically it's 40 plus 45, 85% of people feel that we will have trauma. So that's why we're here tonight. Okay, so let's, going to do the live question first? Do live first? Okay, we're gonna do first a live question,
0: okay?
1: Hi, Hi, sorry, you're on.
5: Unmute. Yeah, I just have to warn you, I got fireworks all over the place. here. <laughs> outside, outside, right? Yeah, yeah, you're going to hear a lot of boom, you know, whatever. You know, I, I've been listening, I'm just gaining a lot from the, from the pearl, what they've been saying. Um, you know, it took me a while really to develop a sense of self after my own very, pretty much horrible childhood. And I'm still working on certain issues. However, I, I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm not I'm not from for birth I come into you know came in later and i I don't always think this way these same way these people do I maybe having grown up with a lot of more cynic, more cynical environments so I, sometimes I feel I can't always put on a smiley face or I, I I am trying to work on positivity but I don't always see the positive in something um you know I, I can I a case in point that today, interestingly, I, I had to pay a shiva call and there was a lively discussion going on. Apparently the person in, uh, was in mourning had a son who was severely autistic, so a bunch of the women there uh, apparently were sharing stories of their own kids with special needs. One of them looked like she was on the verge of a breakdown. She had a, a son who was violent and she's trying to find a place for uh, her. Uh, Placement for him and I. know I, I started talking to her. We really related. Maybe I, I, I am felt. Yeah, maybe I was empathetic. But, I, but I felt that this was the one person that wasn't. I don't say sanguine about life experiences. I admire people for their resiliency and their, you know, their, their outlook. But, yeah, you know, and I, I, and I know there are people who have it worse in life than I. But I sometimes feel I, like I just can't put on a happy face all the time or. or you know, so people, but the community that's sort of a judgmental that if you're, you're you know if you if you're not sweet and innocent or sort of come across that way, then you know then you know then there's there's something spiritually wrong with you. I, so I I don't I, I I don't know if there are people who do think the same way as I about you know I, I am you know.
2: I, well, hi Sarah. If if yeah, I, it sounds to me. Yeah. You're very brave for trying to simply be yourself. Um, you're very brave for saying, this is really how I experience the world. And this is how I see the world. And sometimes it's not always so beautiful and so bright and so filled with, with joy, just hardship and, and pain. And it sounds like you have the courage to not run from that and to, to embrace that and be with it and permit yourself to do that. Obviously, for, for your own sake, not for other people's sake, but for your own sake. It's always good to try to find the goodness in whatever the world has to offer. The moments of peace, the moments of comfort, the moments of connection, the moments of joy. But it sounds to me, and I want you to know you're not alone. You're really not alone. There are days where I walk around feeling, feeling dark and feeling alone, and that's a part of being alive, and that's a part of being a part of this, this universe. And you're entitled to that, but it's hard to hear that you're hurting in that type of way. And I hope that you continue to pursue comfort uh, and not only choose to stay in a space. And I think there is, you know, there are elements of choice that exist in this space. Ahali, I just want to recommend a book based on what you're saying. It's uh, certainly one of my wife's favorite books. Um, A book called The Choice by uh, Dr. Eger, E-G-A-R, E-G-A-R, E-G-E-R? E-R. E-G-E-R, Dr. Edith Eger, called The Choice, which I think is something based on your question. I think you'd enjoy that book. And uh, we would love to hear from you after you finish reading it.
4: Mm -hmm. And I want to tell you that, in a way, because you didn't have a superficial happy face on, you were able to connect to another person who didn't have a superficial happy face on. And in in a way, in that place of, of... Lack of superficiality in that place of sadness, you found connection, and another person found connection. So, in a sense, that's where the light is in that dark story of yours. There is connection even in what you shared with us today.
6: Beautiful. Let's go to the next live question. You're on. Uh, hi, Dr. Perlman. I really want to thank you for your introduction. It kind of 75% already answered my question. Basically, I I think even most people in the world have gone through situations. Either I was taken advantage of, let's say, abused. Um, you know, people did things and got away with it. And obviously, these feelings keep on haunting me. Sometimes, especially when I'm in my very happy moments, and it stirs up my happiness. And I want to release it, but an inner voice inside me tells me, "How can you let this person get away?" I mean. How could this person get scot-free from what the bad doings that he did? And obviously, I can't take any revenge, both halakhically and, you know, circumstances don't allow. And uh, just inside my head wants something negative to happen to those people so I could just feel calmed down. But I know that that's not the healthy approach, and I want to emotionally release myself from these negative feelings so I could just focus on my happy part of myself and, you know, I don't know how to do it because this voice stops me from doing it. How would you end with the situation?
2: Wow, it's very brave of you even to speak about. It. And uh, I want you to know, I did not hear a single word of what you said, or even syllable that sounded remotely unhealthy to me. You know, I spend my day listening to people that are seeing the world through very unhealthy means, and what you just shared with all of us did not at all sound unhealthy. It sounded like you're still hurting by the fact that there's a person out there that their justice was not served, the possibility that maybe they're hurting somebody else. And it shows up in these moments where you're in a a sense of joy and a sense of relief that this part is still there with you. It's still a part of who you are as a person. Um, and, I, and I know I'm going to say something that's going to be hard to digest that. The one thing I would ask is that you sit with it for a little bit and then, and then feel free to reach out to talk about it further. But this experience that you had defines who you are as a person. And what you're talking about is attempting to shed something that is a defining characteristic of who you are as a human being. Your sensitivities, your sensibilities, your sense of compassion, your sense of justice, which are all beautiful qualities and traits, have emerged from, of the darkest places in the world. And the notion or the desire to shed that part of your being, you'd also be losing out on many other parts. Um, so this is, instead of trying to run away, possibly lean in and say, teach me something. Tell me something about myself. Tell me about how I could take my experience and bring it into the world, and possibly provide some healing and comfort to another who's lost. Or, or think about the own elements in your own life that have been through some very dark ways um, enhanced by this experience, even though it's a hard thing to sit with this reality. But it's something I'm hoping, because I didn't hear anything, and I'm, I'm listening as carefully as I can. I didn't hear anything that you said that sounded unhealthy. That's something that you needed to shed. You're talking about grieving and loss and mourning, and that's the process. But these are experiences that we don't simply move away from. We don't simply forget. We attempt to integrate. We attempt to have them find some, what we meaning making in our lives. So then it has a place for it to be expressed. That if you could take what you've been through, the suffering in your world, and potentially develop a greater sense of self and live in a, in a more alive form of way, then it's already accomplished something that's positive. From the darkest places, this light has emerged, and I'd love for you just to to spend a moment with that thought and see where it takes you, Um, but obviously the pain is still very, very present, but the fact that you want this person to suffer, the fact that you want justice to play out, um, I fully join you in that, and if you uh, pull me in the right direction, I'll (laughs) join you in this fight, Um, whatever we can (laughs) do, justice into the world.
1: Okay. Let's go to this next question. I'm gonna focus to Dr. Tamara since uh, Shalom bias is her big thing. If there are so many people struggling in the marriages today, there must be like a running theme we are missing that we could be working on. More years, Dr. Tamara, what what would what would that be?
4: That's that's a good question. And I've been taught a lot about marriage uh, by being in a marriage, thank God, and also by working with a lot of women and couples that are in marriages. You know, one of my favorite um, images that come to mind when it comes to a marriage is something I learned in a, in a safer by um, Mrs. Gallant, uh, stages of spiritual growth. If, if if you like what this sounds like, get your hands on that book. It's a great, it's a great safer. She quotes Rav Huttner's stages of um, growth with Chesed and Emmet and um, Gvura. And she talks about a navi in um, Yicheskel, um, where it talks about, um, you know, I don't understand this so well again, but it's it. I understand it enough. A lot of times, when I learn something in Torah, when I have access to it in whatever way I can, all the things that the clients have taught me and life has taught me kind of comes together in this in this kind of perfect way that no no other forum can do. And and I. Tons of psychology and i'm going to continue to and i read tons of and i go to trainings and i'm going to continue to but this was one of these things that captured it for me it was talking about it talks about the divine chariots and there is this language of Ratsavashav that these chariots where would run towards hashem you know in, in the divine worlds they would run towards hashem in desire to connect to hashem right so they were running not just walking running Wanting that connection, and then veshav, and then they lean back. They 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 kind of go backwards a little bit, and that to me isn't just a parallel to our relationship with Hashem, but also a parallel to what happens a lot in marriage. A marriage, in a way, is tension between wanting connection. We run towards this connection most of the time. People get married because they chose to be married to the people they married. They run towards it, it doesn't happen at them, it's not thrown at them, they don't fall into it. They actively walk, run towards it, towards the very person that they bring into the room to me, either actively or not actively, right? And then something happens where they retreat back. There is this fear, what's the fear? The fear with the chariots is that we can get close to Hashem, but if we get too close, you get consumed. All you have is closeness and you lose your individuality. And that's the that's the tension in a marriage. It's the tension between closeness and a retaining of self. If I let go of this and I connect to my spouse, you know, he wants, he wants, to, uh, this is what he wants from me. This is what it requires for me to be there. He wants me to serve dinner this way, to run a Shabbos home this way, to be this kind of a mother, to say this to him, to be okay with this about his family. We hold on to something. We're not trying to be stubborn for no reason. We're holding on to some part that feels essential to us. And if we lose that part, we lose ourselves. In fact, there are relationships like that. That's why there's a word called enmeshment, it's a misunderstood word but it exists nevertheless, there is a difference between enmeshment and connection. A connection is a connection between two separate selves. Enmeshment is a loss of the self in the connection. So what would I say is the running theme? I would say there are two running themes. The two running themes are some lack of balance within this tension between self and closeness. In, for example, You know, unfortunately at all times, I have a couple of, most of the time when when a woman walks into my office or a couple walks into my office, my objective is, you know, help them stay together and, you know, help this work. A lot of times I reach out to Rabbanam about this to help me clarify that. This tension of the self being preserved and connection happening should work well, ideally, right? Ideally, you you, Hashem has have, has us get married, I think, partly so that we can become better selves. We actually shed parts of us. If, if you were shamed as a child in the way that you were raised and then you end up having a shaming language in the way that you talk to people and that really bothers your spouse, then you shedding that part of you is good for you. You become a better self. But you would never do this if you weren't married because you wouldn't have to do this uncomfortable work of doing things differently. You shed the shaming part so that you connect better. And the reason that you shed it because you want to connect better, because you love the other and you want connection. But a lot of times what ends up happening is the number one one mistake, this is the most prevalent mistake, is that I think people come into a relationship thinking that they don't need to change. They think they come in and they're already, we don't get married at 120, then we'd have like one day to be married. We come in very, very unprocessed, unwhole. And we need the marriage to make us more whole. And I think a lot of the, a lot of resistance is the fear to change and the resistance to the idea that we need to change. So I think that, you know, you said the word choice when you were speaking to that to that beautiful woman in about about choosing to seek the happiness the connection in a marriage especially isn't necessarily natural it's the only relationship in a way that has an active choice in it you can unchoose your spouse you can't unchoose your child even if in some ways you you do that in other ways but you can literally unchoose your spouse So choice is a central part of a powerful marriage. And the choice is to say, I will choose connection at the expense of loss of parts of me. I am choosing connection. Now, the second mistake, and I have to say this part because it's too unsafe to not say it. What, What if the only way you can connect, you have to shed parts of you that will cause you harm or will cause you pain, that will essentially will kind of take away the essence of who you are. Remember, every time I call a Rob and I ask a question, he doesn't just, you know, this happens to me with David Cohen, for example. I called him and I asked him a question where he's given me a heter about a specific issue with a lot of the callers that I work with. So I thought, here he's going to give me another heter. It was a husband that was demanding and a wife that didn't want, to, didn't want to shed that part of her spiritual self. It was about a spiritual demand and had to do with her emotional and spiritual self. And I asked the Rav, can the Torah be flexible to make this couple have more shalom bayis and Rav David Cohen? He says to me, Dr. Prohmann, quote unquote, right? He said, do you want me to turn the Torah upside down so this husband can continue to abuse his wife? This is what he said to me. He said, you help her get out. Because the way that she is, he's asking for connection, she has to not shed parts of her that are in the way of her better self, but to shed her, to shed her essence, to shed who he is, who she is. So I would say that's the second less common, but also a second theme is when a person doesn't have like i was talking earlier a sense of what's essential to her or him and what's not essential and doesn't know what parts to hold down to and what parts to let go of and ends up doing that the wrong way and ends up being in a relationship that's rigid and controlling and unfortunately abusive so i would say those two themes is not choosing connection and therefore not being willing to shed parts of us that we shouldn't have, that are in the way of our love and our our giving and our being better spouses. And two, not having a sense of what your essence is and enough of a self-love to hold on to it.
1: Wow. Okay, let's go to another live question.
5: Hi, thank you so much. I wanted to ask two questions. Number one, does a person who went through complex trauma as opposed to single event trauma, do they need therapy in order to heal, or can they heal on the basis of self-awareness, musr, chasidus, the things that you've been speaking of, speaking about, that's question one. And question two, both of you in your presentation use the word pause and the necessity to pause. How can we train ourselves to pause and reflect as opposed to being reactive? Thank you so much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: By the way, Dr. Kiva, just to "No, uh, our 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 listeners are very learned because we had a whole session on complex trauma."
2: <laughs> I'm like, I'm waiting for the simple. A lot of here. <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> no simple questions. Um, I uh, okay. I just first of all, I want to pause for a second, um, only because we should. And 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 let's do that together for a moment. And I think it's uncomfortable, even my suggestion of saying, "Let's pause for a moment." Um, but I think that if we could do it collectively, then maybe we could demonstrate, but also provide, provide freedom to say it's okay to do such a thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pause for a moment and just hold on to that thought and that question because this is what I would do if we were sitting in my office. We would take that question and, and just be quiet for the next 10 minutes and say, okay, let let something natural simply emerge, but we don't have that time. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna get in trouble for the ten minutes, but uh, but just for. I, I hope you're hearing what I'm saying about the pause. There's nothing we could do, but simply practice pausing, um, and permit a voice to to naturally emerge. And I think when we find that when, trained, to respond so quickly and intuitively, uh, we're we're basically sending a message to ourselves that we're not inherently trustworthy people that we could lean in on who we are. We're primarily focused on responding and being reactive to others. Um, so learning to pause is learning to also respect ourselves. Um, and, and, and it's a muscle that we need to develop. And just to go back to your first question, I, I'd love to hear also what my wife has to say about this. Um, when you're talking about ways to heal, like I see, I love therapy. I never actually intended on becoming a therapist. That wasn't my plan. When I was in school, they asked, like, what would you like to be doing? And my response was, I'd like to sit in an office with beanbags and smoke hookah with kids who were going off the derrick. That was my actual response. And I actually drew a picture of what my my office would ultimately look like. And then part of the learning process is you start doing therapy in a clinic. And I started doing therapy and fell in love with it. and And it has never really ended since then. But to me, therapy is a tool to help others heal. And that's, all it is it's a tool the objective healing and i think that if and i've done this many times and several many times fine comes in and i i could take the tehillim that i have in my office which is i have i have more of a tehillim than i have of of my other secular books and start reading about the experience of david and what his life was like and what his story was And David HaMelech went through virtually every emotion we could ever imagine. He went through rage and doubt and joy and healing and fear and a sense of abandonment. It's all there. And so I I do believe wholeheartedly that if we read Tehillim with an open heart and an open mind, then we could heal simply by doing that the same way we can by learning Mus'r, by luchasidas, and engaging in these other ways of, of enlightening ourselves. There are obviously, it's a wonderful tool, And many of us could tap into it, but to presume that therapy is the only way that we could heal, I think, is a very limited perspective. Um, And not only that, but even if you're in therapy, we should still be utilizing these tools that we have, because they give us a very broad perspective on what healing ultimately looks like. So therapy is a great tool, but that doesn't mean it's for everyone. It doesn't mean it's for everyone at all times. It means if you're willing, classic example, you have a person who everyone else in that person's life says that this individual should go to therapy. And the only person who does not wanna to go to therapy is the individual himself or herself. They just don't wanna go. Sending that person to therapy is gonna you know, produce very, very limited results because they're simply not interested. So therapy is a great tool if you're ready, if it's the right person, if you're in the right state of mind, if you're really truly willing to work, if you're surrounded by the right type of people to support you in that journey. There's so many variables that make for a successful therapy altogether. Um, but, but therapy is a beautiful thing, but to presume that it's the only way to heal, I think is a, is a gross misrepresentation of what healing looks like altogether. Find a mountain, take a guitar, and sing to us that's healing in its own right. Okay, Dr. Bromund.
1: And,
4: and I would, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking back. Yeah, I was thinking that um, exactly what you were saying of like that. There's so many ways to heal, but a lot of times I find if the people around us that are close to us, like our spouse, or our children, uh, are telling us that there is some some way that we're hurting them, and there's then the sometimes needs to be asked why would I not do something, you know. Sometimes the people around us, be. why would I not do something that can maybe be maybe bring more healing?
2: What do yeah, you think about that? 100%. Listen, if anyone in our lives is recommending that we go to therapy, like we should probably listen to them. They're probably onto to something. Um, it probably means that we're hurting them too. And they don't know how to say that. Instead, they say, you look like you're hurting, so you should get some help. Instead of saying, please stop hurting me. Um, so if someone recommends as an adult and they seem grounded enough, please go to therapy and take them up on it. It's a nice thing. Therapy at the end of the day, guys, is two human beings sitting in a room having a conversation. There's nothing profoundly mysterious about it. It's honest, it's real, it's meaningful, it's vulnerable, but that's all it is.
1: Okay, let's go to the next live question, You're on.
3: Hi. Hi, my name is Bonnie. Um, hi everybody, thank you so much for this uh, Zoom uh, meeting. And I just wanna um, ask a question about trauma from uh, past ans- ancestry. Um, is there anything different that you do for trauma in our living, like in our life, as opposed to pass down trauma from ancestors? Meaning like we we have so many, um, you know, ancestors that were in the Holocaust. Um, I've been doing a lot of research on my uh, ancestors, and I had a great grandmother who was um, beaten to death um, in Poland, and I never knew about that. Um, But I just found out about it. So um, yeah, I'm just throwing out that question because um, I believe that we carry some of that trauma with us in our lives today.
6: Can you, speak
3: about that? you know, something that as you're speaking
4: um, reminds me of a quote I read in R- Moshe Shapiro's book on uh, the Parsha where he, he said, we are leavers of Egypt. We are we are a people that were in Egypt but we are leavers of Egypt at all times. You know, we are people that are defined by Yetziat Mitzrayim. So, you know, you have it closer to you even because you know particularly about your your great grandmother, that, um, and 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 the horrific way that her life was taken, and in a way, we all our ancestry has trauma. We, you know, are we are defined by having come, you know, Yetsiam mitzrayim and mitzrayim. I mean, mitzrayim is an is, is an ultimate trauma in many ways, right? Our families were disrupted. Our sense of power and and. Um, sense of we were slaves we didn't have our own power yeah. and 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 you know like like my husband was saying that that is not something to run away from that's something to lean into that we are leavers of Egypt right uh, that we are we're levers of trauma um, and you know I would kind of go along with what you had said about what about that can mean something to you not in a way of of course through the pain, and that's something that I always think about. That we first talk about avadim and only then we talk about you know we would talk about our slavery, and only then we talk about freedom. We have to be in the pain of it first. But what does that mean to you? Um, and who can you? What does that mean to you? Like that your, you know, in a way, your great grandmother died for the sake of for the sake of Hashem because she was a Jew, um, and that she endured that kind of pain. Like what? What in your life can you, can you take in from that and, and continue to live perpetuating her life? And you, you survived, here you are. What's the, what are the chances of that? So that's the way that I would approach that. What do you think?
5: Yeah,
2: I think uh, you know, there's a few ways, just in a little bit of a different direction. There are a few ways to really look at um, the lesser direction, by the way. You know, you you heard the right answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna give a, a lesser answer, um, but the when you think about trauma, there are a few ways you have you have what we call intergenerational studies on trauma and where it ultimately comes from. Uh, but but one you could say it's genetic that trauma is somehow passed down in our genetic pool and makes its way into the next generation, or we could look at it from another one, which is more elemental, which is that when a person is raised by an individual who themselves have been traumatized by something, that they are experiencing the residual effects of that. They're directly affected by it. And it's something that we need to know that trauma will live on forever, unless a brave soul stands up and says, enough, die, it's gotta end, it's gotta stop. That's what happens with trauma because the traumatized parent traumatizes their child who then in turn does the same to the next generation. Um, so it becomes now your journey of saying, there's been suffering in my genetic pool, my family has suffered. And what am I doing in this moment to create an end to that? So this way that for, for the futuring of, of who I am as a person, who I am as a family, that there's going to be a greater chance at making my way through this world with a little bit less, it doesn't have to be a profound, you know, shut the whole thing down, but with a little less suffering. Um, and and I hope that and I could tell even just by your expression that that's something that you're striving for and something that means a lot to you and uh, uh, that not only gives me hope but I imagine it gives everyone else hope as they're observing you just taking in your role in the world which is to create a safer space.
1: Wow beautiful I just want to say Dr. Crowman, I think like there was like 700 people so far I mean at one point like three hundred and fifty that more promos. and see all the promos over here. like real Sam did like a whole the <laughs> a
2: whole I, I'm sitting here I can't tell you what this is like just, just for me for us. I have my my brothers here. I have my uh my son he he seems to have run but to even <laughs> to even present in front of uh you know my child uh it's just this this environment okay. it you just feels
1: ask a live question and I don't let him I'm just letting you know. it off you
2: know. <laughs> let's go next live question you're on I love
3: you guys. hi. Hi. I have a question about, you know, both of you mentioned about being vulnerable um, with spouses and with um, other, um, you know, just to bring happiness and connection to others. I'm wondering what you have to say about, um, you know, when it comes to narcissistic or abusive spouses, and how the vulnerability can sometimes be turned against you. Um, how do you work with
2: that? Um, well, you were speaking about this before.
4: Yeah, you know, as um, as you said that, like I have a pang of pain. Right. First, I just want to say that 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 hurts. Um, having someone that vulnerability is unsafe with is painful. Um, you know, I don't feel like my shoulders are broad enough right now to give an answer overall. What do you do in a, in a situation like that, right? It's going to be one of those annoying, it depends on the situation, um, responses. But one of the things that, you know, I like hearing and sometimes I like saying is that your life is the only one you can live. And you you can make a choice as a wife as to who you are and what what you are willing and wanting to work with. Um, you know, even when I'm working with somebody that I sometimes feel like I wanna save them, like this feeling like I just wanna grab her and like move her out of her marriage. Like if even if I could do it like just just like that, like without any process, just wanna so badly, just do that because she's hurting and she's being mistreated all the time and it's and it's like i just want to scream like get out just get out like you don't have to do this to yourself i know that you know I, I, I have different processes with that sometimes i allow myself to say that at some point if i have a relationship enough with the person but i know that ultimately she needs to feel empowered in whatever decision she makes because even me quote unquote saving her is even me doing something good for her, so to speak, right? Maybe. It's still she is not the one that's in charge of that. She already feels not in charge in her relationship. Ultimately, what what my goal is and what I in for is that she gets to a place where she can make a choice, that she has enough of a self to really make a choice. That's not my choice to make, but it's my my my. My mission, my what I try to do is to help her have a have a choice and then to make one. You know, I remember somebody that came in from unfortunately a relationship that, you know, I have just as much as much as of a negative reaction to an abusive relationship as I have to using the language abusive in a non-abusive relationship. So I, I don't jump to this word easily. And in fact, when I'm working with a couple and then one of them says something like and he abuses i pause and i said i really take that word very seriously let's let's see what's happening here in the same way i would pause if something that was happening that was hurt hurtful and and wrong wronging somebody in a you know significant way um so the the i remember asking like what brought you in here like you know you've been in this marriage for 10 years and here you are in the office now and she said you know I heard you in a lecture. I said, okay, so, but what about the lecture? Like, what what was it? And she said, you spoke about that there is such a thing as having a self outside of the marriage. And then I realized, wait a second, do I have one? Do I exist outside of this marriage? So a lot of times my goal in a relationship like that is to help the woman find that self outside of the marriage first, And that for that self to make a decision from that place of power, whether or not she wants to be in such a relationship. That's what I would say.
2: Yeah. But there are people who are abusive and it's something we need to know. And I don't think there's anything more painful than trying as hard as you can while in an abusive relationship to make it work. Yes. Because you've clearly like, erase yourself as a human being to try to make something work with right intentions with a sense of a failure and that's got a profound amount of pain because it erases self and it also erases the hope that maybe I could do this again yes and my only hope is that we 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 take a fresh look at it and say this was a really terrible situation and and listen to the lecture that people were giving on on divorce and trying to recreate something where that's not doesn't have to remain the narrative for the rest of one's life it happens people end up in very abusive relationships and thankfully many of them later end up in relationships that are anything but that yes um but being vulnerable with someone who's abusive is a profound amount of pain go to the next live question okay you're on
7: is that me? Yeah,
1: that's you.
7: Okay, fine. Hi. So I'm actually in in for a while now, and um, so I was Baruch Hashem to recently have a Rebbe that also like put me in the place, and I myself worked a bit on like sort of like setting myself back and understanding what's going within myself, sort of like what you were talking about being quiet and like allowing my emotions to just exist and like understand my emotions, and. So I have two questions. The first one is that there is, from doing that, there's a lot of things that came up that I realized that I can can work on. So my question is, is there ever a point of when like I can stop sort of like working on those things and getting back to, I would consider like my regular day-to-day life? Or like, do I just go on, quote unquote, forever? Or how long do I go on to work for and, and work on the, these so many things that come up, like very small detailed things that I can can work on. That's on the first question, Me- meaning it, if, if, if I do go on, then how long do I go on for? And the second question is that there is something that I did realize that might've came from a trauma when I was, was younger. And in the logical sense, I don't see how a girl that I would be dating, especially at my age and stage would like, re- let alone appreciate it and maybe even like wrap their head around it and like go for it but it's something that i feel is important and that i want and that i appreciate and only because i think i came to the stage that i realized that it might have come with some trauma or something hard that proves that i that, that i really want it the fact that i'm still like going for it even even though i, I went through all the, all of this trauma associated with it so how do I put these two things together? The fact that I want it, I don't think that somebody else will sort of appreciate it. Like, how do I work those two things out?
2: Right. Well, I, I, I'm actually pretty passionate about your first question. And, and number one, I think it's awesome that you're just working on yourself. It's very clear that you're just in a space where I want to work this out. I want to gain some clarity about my life. And, and it's an inspiration to all of us. Um, There's this notion that's sort of become popular in the past ten years or so within our profession that you need to like shut down your life, resolve your trauma, and then continue with your life at a certain point. Um, And I, I just want to express that I don't believe that's how it works. Like we're a work in progress at all times. I sometimes envision a life where I don't feel like I'm in progress anymore or process. And it's pretty boring when you think about it. Like, you have those moments of, like, what would this look like if everything sort of gets resolved? And it's, I,
1: Can I, can I pause you for a second? Yes. Sorry, I'm sorry to do this, but I think this would tie in very well. Mm-hmm. Trauma ever be cured?
2: Cured. Cured, to me, represents something that it no longer exists. That's a cure. Like when you cure cancer, it no longer exists within the person. As if it You know, not to say it didn't happen. Trauma shapes us. Trauma becomes us. It integrates into who we are. Now, we either integrate it in a way that is functional and deepens our life, or we sort of somehow survive it and try to push it behind us um, as if it never really existed. So if, if we're looking at the term cure through the lens of, like, it's no longer a part of my life, to me, I find... That's traumatic and tragic when your trauma is something that no longer is a part of your life. Um, trauma shapes us. It's a part of us. It's who we are, the good, the bad, the ugly. And for whatever reason, it was something that's supposed to, that that was supposed to happen to us. So when we talk about curing as if it's no longer a part of our existence, to me, I find that to be quite tra- tragic. Um, it is ones, the ones, the, the inspiring people um, that I encounter are those who are willing to understand that they went through life like many other people and they found a way to grow from it and they found a way to utilize it in a positive way. Um, and just, uh, I hope that answers that question. I'd love to hear what you have to say on that. But I did wanna just get back to that first question that this is a journey. You're, you're in like, this is not a sprint. There's no such thing as like, and I hear this a lot now, because it's become a part of like our general jargon, our pop psychology jargon of like, you know, I'm going to go away for a month, I'm going to go do an intensive rehab program, and then it's going to be gone. I'm just going to continue on with my life. Um, And that is the farthest thing from the truth from anyone who's sat with people and spent time with people who are journeying in this type of way. It's something that will forever be remembered and forever be a part of one's life, period. And you have two choices. You either choose to accept that or you choose to reject it. And rejecting it just means you now need to develop a whole sense of defenses against the pain that emerges and accepting it is, this is a part of my humanity. This is something I'm gonna to have to learn to live with and be okay with. And obviously we wanna get rid of the charge. We wanna get rid of the destructive nature that comes along with it. But the fact that we've suffered in our lives Um, is just entry into the club of humanity. Um, Like we saw with the poll, you know, we're all in that club and we need to find a way on some level to celebrate it without it destroying us. Um, That's my thought on that first question. I just, it's something that comes up all the time. This whole idea of let me just shed trauma. Um, And I keep like wanting to say Yes, celebrate the parts of it that have enhanced your life and find a way to manage the parts that have really been harmful to you as opposed to shedding.
8: Yeah,
4: I don't think I could add anything to that. It just reminds me of this one client when she once said to me, She said, I keep on working on myself and trying to be more loving, but my eyes, my eyes, um, they keep on giving me away and she, she said, I'm sitting across from my child, and my child says, you know, you're trying to listen to me, you know, she's sitting with her, um, with her um, 16-year-old daughter, you're trying to listen to me, and and, and you you know that you're saying all the words, you're not judging me, but in your eyes, I just see such, such um, disdain and anger, and she comes to me, and she says, Dr. Perlman, like, help me get rid of my eyes. I hate them. I hate my eyes. I hate the way that I've been seen. I hate the way that I grew up, the way that I was viewed, the way that I wasn't seen and the way I was seen, just get rid of them. Like she's like, just, she was in so much pain. She hated her eyes. She's like, I don't want my daughter to be seen the way that I was seen, but I can't, I can't get rid of my eyes. And she's like, I hate them. And she had tears coming out of these eyes. She hated and and then I remember as her tears were coming out, I said, like, what are these tears? What are these tears coming from these hateful eyes, you know, from these horrible, hateful eyes. And she's like, these are the tears of pain of seeing my daughter there, who is in pain. And then in that place of pain, of her hateful eyes, her tears are the ones of, that see her daughter in pain, because her eyes have been so hurt they're tuned in to see her daughter's pain. So the same eyes that haven't been seen can now see even better. And she comes in the next session and she says, she says, my eyes, my eyes can love more than they can hate. And in fact, her eyes can love even more because they used to hate. So I think that's part of what you're saying is, if we're looking for a cure, we're missing the power.
1: I want to jump on this question since we developed a few of these topics. I'm currently in Shaduchim and looking for so many things, and I was wondering what you feel from all your years of experience most would be some of the most important character traits we should look for in the other person to make sure they are healthy.
2: Yeah,
4: I remember when I was in seminary. You know, just a few years ago, I remember asking this question to Rav, Rav Noach Orlewick. Um, I remember thinking, like, there is a Gadol in front of me. I don't know if I'll have access to him when I'm actually, you know, more actively in Shadokhin. And I just wanted to pick his brain and take from it. And I asked, I remember asking something similar to this, you know. Um, um, When you're in seminary, like, all roads lead to eventually asking about Shadokhin, right? That's like what, what happens. And And I remember he said a word that really struck me. I, I knew then that I didn't fully understand it, but that was godless in it. And it was later than parallel in everything that I had studied. Um, when I was in grad school, um, I will tell you what the word is very soon. Dr. Goldclank, who was somebody I studied with, she said that uh, pathology is the narrowing of options and health is the widening of options. When you can only do something one way or there's a lot of rigidity somewhere, that usually means there's a lack of health there. And when you create more, more options, that means you're widening that space. Um, you know, you can think about it spiritually as growing in your b'khira however you want to frame it for yourself. The widening of options is usually a sign of health. So uh, the word that Rob have used is flexibility. That in, and flexibility is a sign of characteristic health. Now, this does not mean have care or that she or he doesn't have values or she doesn't care about anything. Flexibility is a, it's, it's a characterological quality. It's a mida. It, it means that I have the space to do things in more than one way. I have space for you. It doesn't have to be a certain way. It doesn't have to be at this hour in this exact kind of way. Because when it's like that, then how much space do I have for the other? It's a very particular box and you have to warp yourself to fit into that box. And that, and that, what, that could not be right for you. So I would say if I had to pick one character trait, it would be flexibility. What do you think?
2: One part I would focus on again. I my wife is really the one who speaks about married couples and and how that works. Um, I just feel uh, lucky to be in a relationship with her. Um, but I when you think about the experience of being cared for, I, to me it's just an essential quality. That I think that when when we present ourselves to the world, we're often presenting ourselves as look at me and look at what I've done and look at what have I, I've accomplished and how you the other is supposed to see me and acknowledge me and, and honor and respect me. But when you're in a relationship with a person who you feel cared for, that your ideas matter, that your thoughts matter, that your heart matters. Um, to me, that is of the most essential qualities where it no, doesn't introduce any form of competition. It introduces the sense of partnership that we're in life together and we care about one another and and what we're going through and especially that a spouse cares about the lived experience of their spouse and it's not just about what it means to them but rather how could i fully be present with what it means for the other um, that to me is always like of the great symbols of what it means to be in a loving caring relationship
1: let's go one more live question then we have one more and then we'll go to closing sorry for keeping you guys so long but it's, it's, you know what it is? It's so powerful.
7: We can do it. We can do this
8: all night. Okay, you're on. Yes. Hi. Um, thank you so much um, for this great opportunity and this great gift that you're giving us. Um, I, I'm working with a couple now, um, and I use the EFT model mainly. Um, and I'm struggling with this couple, my hardest couple right now, that the wife basically says, The way she protects herself is saying that she doesn't really want connection. Um, um, She's just okay being by herself. She wants her space. Um, She's also not looking for happiness. She's like the type that just wants to be like brutally real and not happy necessarily. And, And that's how she's showing up. She's coming to therapy with her husband for her husband's sake, basically. And she's coming for a long time with her husband every single week. Um, but we keep going back to this um, on her end. And I uh, I appreciate uh, what you said, Dr. Tamara, for explaining the female perspective, which I, I, I found already I heard a lot of insight from what you said before, which helps me understand that the idea that from the female perspective, um, you said that They see themselves as not being able to change or losing their identity by changing. And that's a big fear. So that definitely speaks to this. I just wanted to know if there's anything more that you could add to this because I'm really struggling with this couple.
5: Um,
2: I just say before my wife answers, it's so great to see you, feel, And I love your question. Um, We had the opportunity to journey together a bunch of years ago, and it's just wonderful to hear that that these, this couple is blessed to be in your presence, period. They're in good hands. Yes, yeah, sorry.
4: That's probably all you need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a couple couple work is really hard because you're working with three clients, the husband, the wife, and the couple. And sometimes these three clients are in big clash with each other and then you in the room, right? It's It's really complicated work. And one of the big pieces there that's a hard one is choice. You know, if, if one of them, if both of them are in and want this marriage to work, that's 90% of the work already done. If one of them is in and the other one is out, that's, you know, that's where it gets really complicated. And that's where for the most part, a lot of our work ends up being. It sounds like to some degree, she's ambivalent whether or not she's in. and And she is kind of playing with that. You know, playing with that. Am I am I in this? Am I not? You know, you said this line, she's there for the sake of the husband. That means that there is a part of her that wants something for her husband. So without knowing more about what's happening, I would try to lean into what that is. What does that mean that she's there for her husband? Where, you know, where is where is the hope there? Where is the positivity there? You know, and Dr. um, in the in the labs with the work Gottman. in Gottman's work, Dr. Gottman's work, you know, where they would watch couples, you know, for twelve hours from nine a.m. to nine p.m., and at this point, you know, in, in, within like seven minutes, he can identify whether or not a couple will stay married or divorced. And he, and he coined this word, you know, he, he coined it to if he sees contempt between the couple that, you know, 93% or some number like that, they will not stay married. And I, when I thought about this a bit further, I thought that what's in contempt, it's a lack of hope. It's a hopelessness. It's a giving up. It's there is no way I can both be happy and stay married at the same time. I find that if there as a therapist, if you can somehow find a place where there is even an ounce of hope, then you can start building from that. And if you feel hope and they don't, that can also be a place that you can start building with. That's Rabba.
0: Amen. Okay, I I know it's late, but I, I think before closing, I just want to throw out this question I struggle emotionally and tend to have similar struggles with the relationship with Hashem. Why is that and what can I do to help it? I, um, I so deeply
2: respect this question. Um, there was a study that was done by Dr. Pelkowitz and team Dr. Rosemarin as well a few years ago when he was looking at a group of very fractured individuals and how that impacted their relationship with Hashem. Uh, these were individuals who grew up uh, within the Frum community. They were, uh, they were our brothers and sisters living in the, in the same type of way that most people in this group are living. And they had earlier experiences in their life of some form of abuse. Most of the participants in the study, if not all, had a history of sexual abuse. And the results of this study were definitive and clear um, that basically made the statement that for people who've been violated early on in their life, um, really seemingly struggle with religiosity later on in their lives. And the question always becomes why, why and how? I just wanna share an idea that has resonated with me and, and is with me when I sit with clients who are struggling with religiosity and also trauma in their past. There was a the middle areba Rebbe, who was the, I believe the second Lubavitch Rebbe um, he shared a beautiful concept, which I think re- it just resonates. Um, where he said, when you look at the Aseret HaDibros, you have the, the the first part, the first tablet is man's relationship with Hashem. The second one is for one caveat. There's one there's one exception to that, which is at the bottom of the first tablet. It says that man is supposed to honor his father and mother. Which, when you look at it at first glance, it's man's relationship with man. Parents are people. They're not our relationship with Hashem when you talk about parents. So what is the relevance between our relationship with our parents and our relationship with Hashem? There seems to be that connection. And he gives a profound answer where he says that understanding Hashem in this world, being that we're mortal and we're confined by time and we're bound by many limitations, it it's nearly impossible for us as human beings. That's why we call it faith. It's nearly impossible for us to fully jump into the relationship with Hashem um, without some type of construct to understand what it means to be an all-loving, all-knowing, all-accepting, all-embracing being in the world. And what the middle of Rebbe says is that the, the closest thing that we have as a metaphor for, our, for man's relationship with Hashem is man's relationship with his parents. That is the closest thing that we have. That if our parents love us unconditionally, accept us, respect us, see us as individuals, it is much easier for us to look at Hashem, to conceptualize Hashem as being such a character in our lives. And it works the other way as well, unfortunately. That if we're living with fractured attachment, if we're living with this sense of disconnect from this force, this powerful force between our parents and ourselves, then conceptualizing Hashem in a very loving way becomes something that's increasingly challenging. And virtually every patient I've ever sat with who has struggled with relationships with their parents, they likewise suffer with a relationship with Hashem because the two are seemingly interconnected. Um, so when you talk about the relationship between suffering, which, fortunately, um, which unfortunately or unfortunately, however you wanna look at it, suffering almost always includes our parents. Whether or not we like it, suffering almost always includes our parents. Um, when you listen to people's stories about pain, one of the harsh realities of sexual abuse is that victims of sexual abuse almost always blame their parents more than the actual perpetrator. And parents respond to that. They're so compl- like perplexed by that. How is that possible? I didn't do anything. And then when you hear from the, the, the children who've gone through that, they say, Yo, you know what? My perpetrator wasn't tasked with protecting me. And you were, that was your job as parents. You were supposed to be the ones to make sure that I was safe and I was okay. And for whatever reason, either you didn't know or whatever it might be, that I was hurt in that particular type of way. So the pain towards one parent's suffering almost always includes parents in the storyline. And if that's the case, it almost always also includes Hashem. So we need to think, and it's one of the things you notice, I work in Williamsburg, part of my week. And yeah, Williamsburg is primarily made up of Did I say something wrong? <laughs> oh, we're good? I wasn't sure I'm like the middle of Reva. We're not mm-hmm. I'm not sure of the crowd. But uh, we'll have to see. But it's um the I forget what I was saying. Want to talk? We got a little bit. You were talking about in Williamsburg. Right, in Williamsburg. It's an interesting thing to notice that the primary shul that people use in Williamsburg is Sotmer. That's where most people are Sotmer. The second most popular shul in Williamsburg is the complete opposite of Sotmer, it's Breslov. And when we look at that, it's like such an interesting phenomenon. How exactly does that happen? And my understanding of it is that people who are hurting, people who are sort of lost and emotionally. It inevitably makes its way into religion. They start struggling religion. They start asking questions. We need to ask ourselves questions like, why in a group of 30 kids in any given class? Why are certain kids questioning and doubting while other kids are not? And I don't like to see the world through very intellectual lenses, even though we need to consider the mind. But to me, the fact that certain kids are asking questions emerges from another place as well it emerges from a a deeper more meaningful place and to me my understanding of even in Williamsburg as a little case study is that the people who struggle with the Hashem that they grew up with, the parents they grew up with, they need to find a different Hashem, so to speak, not a different God at all, but they need to find a new pathway, a new relationship to Hashem that is different from the one that they grew up with that to them was not necessarily relatable It was not necessarily loving and kind the way they would like to see Hashem. So they switch and you see this a lot with people who have trauma and suffering, almost always when they deviate, when they come back, it's in a different form. It's not in the same form that they grew up with. It's in a form that they can now start seeing Hashem through a different set of lenses and it's more acceptable because the Hashem they grew up with was one that to them, they need to ask questions. I had a patient the other day. He was saying, how is it possible That Hashem loves me and Hashem cares about me, yet permitted all these things to happen to me. How is that possible? And I'm pretty certain, as this young man begins his journey, continues his journey, because he's seeking Hashem, that the Hashem he finds is going to be slightly different than the Hashem he grew up with, the construct of that Hashem. He's seeking, he's looking for Hashem, but it's probably going to be in a different type of shul than the one that he was familiar with in his childhood, because he needs to transform that experience altogether. So suffering and relationships with parents and suffering and relationship with Hashem, in my mind, are completely interchangeable ideas. Um, And in a part of our healing, part of returning to ourselves, is also discovering a way that you could begin to feel from Hashem this unconditional sense of, he ultimately loves me, unconditionally. And that often comes in a different, You know a different package than the way it was packaged in the way you grew up which i know is 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 an interesting concept a challenging concept but it's one that i've seen play out over and over and over again where someone simply needs to return to a world that feels a little bit safer to him than the one he originally he knew all his life
1: okay are we ready to go to closing you ready dr Kiva?
2: we're ready i mean it's 12.10, 12.10, my friend. Uh, <laughs> this a warm- is a great honor. We have, it's huh?
6: getting
1: warmed up. Somebody ask for the mic for 30 seconds.
2: Go. All right.
6: All right, Hi, I'm a former student of Dr. Akiva Perlman and a colleague of Dr. Akiva Perlman and just want to share the other side of the curtain. Um, I feel gifted and honored to work beside him. Uh, I must say in his clinic at ODA, Every person feels the same and equal. The clients, the therapists, the reception is a secretary. Everyone has the same quality. Everyone is beautiful as his wife quoted before. It's an honor to be here. And it's an honor to say everyone um, to be gifted and listening to my colleague and both, Dr. from. Thank you.
2: Israel, you're too kind. The one thing you forgot to say is that you're also my teacher. Mm-hmm. We're colleagues, you're a student, but you're also my teacher. Your humanity teaches me every day. So thank you for that. But thank you for your words, they mean a lot to me.
1: Dr. Praman, I have another like 300 guys that wanna say the same thing, but... Um... <laughs> okay, let's go to closing. Since since uh, Dr. Kiva opened first, so I think Dr. Kiva, um, Dr. Tamar will go first, if that's okay. Or if you wanna switch it around. Okay. Mm-hmm. So First, I want to give a big, big, big thank you to Dr. Akiva, Dr. Tamara Proman for coming on tonight, doing so much chizik and Mimikhazik. I feel like we like touched so many areas, like we we have to like redo this more defined on the area, just to really, you know, and we had a tremendous amount of questions to cover. So anybody who couldn't answer the couldn't get to their question, we're sorry to email us. As I always say, every year we will email Dr. Proman's personal cell phone number and give you his address. You can go straight to this house. He wants to hear you all night. But we can definitely send the email to Coach Manach a Gmail, we'll forward the emails to them. And um, hopefully they'll have time to answer some of them. Again, every Sunday night we have a shear here at 10 o'clock on the Zoom ID, different topics, with next week. We're going to be having Rav Shalom Mordechai Rabashkin. Again, also round two, discussing Wunab Tachem in today's crazy times. He's speaking right before Tishabov. He asked to learn all the Allah about Moshiach comes on Tishabov So we're getting ready for that. So please come here. It's going to be an amazing program. If anybody knows Rav he's Bashkin, he's a powerhouse. So um, he was actually our longest year we ever had. We actually finished almost at one o'clock in the morning with him and then we started singing. So uh, get ready not to sleep tomorrow night. Again, tonight's year sponsored by Recovery at the Crossroads. Recovery at the Crossroads is the only inpatient treatment center in the tri-state area that are licensed co-occurring treatment facility, which means they are licensed to not only treat substance abuse, but also all other underlying mental conditions such as anxiety, depression, or trauma. If you, anybody knows you're struggling with an addiction, feel free to reach out to them at 888-466-5950. Menachem, where are they located?
0: New okay. Jersey.
1: New Jersey. This year is all recorded. It's going to be tomorrow on menachembernfeld.com's website. If you have any questions, please email coachmenachem at gmail.com. Tonight's year is number 62. And if you want to hear it on the phone tomorrow, it'll be on our hotline at 848-777-GROW, G-R-O-W. I want to give a thank you to all our advertising sponsors, the Lake Scoop, Rabia and from Hazak, Chayla Kaplan, Shul Summer from JCN. Let's go to closing first, Coach Menachem. Closing words.
0: I just want to say thank you for doctor and doctor. I think after all these weeks um, of listening to different shows of whatever it was, it's very important just to sit here, not reading a book, just listening and being able, hopefully, people to be able to take some steps to some sort of healing. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Benachem. Dr. Tamar.
4: It was such an honor to share this with you, um, to learn with you. And I just wanna give you one tidbit that is, I get to experience, sometimes I get to bring in a guest into the room when I'm working with somebody, just one time. And um, let's say I'm working with this young lady who is, you know, 20 years old and she's talking about her need of her mother to, to be able to accept parts of her that are not perfect. And I bring in the mother and the mother is sit, sitting across from her and the, and this daughter is taking that risk of vulnerability. And I don't know whether or not it'll go well because I don't know this mother. And this daughter is saying, but Ma, like I, I can share with you things that I know you will be proud of. But when I tell you something that you don't like, you just walk away. You just shut me down, and I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for us to to get closer. I'm ready for the next step, and and it's this moment where I hold my breath. Sometimes I I actually say a quick tefillah to Hashem, like this can't go wrong, right? This this is such an opportunity, and and I could tell you that really ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's really rare this doesn't happen. There is this moment where the mother turns to this daughter and she says in a genuine way for 30 seconds she says i want to do that for you i'm ready and there is this genuine movement for these 30 seconds of this powerful pure connection where they're both higher self just met and it actually those are the moments that helped me understand Yom Kippur a little bit better because we come into this day and it's not a real scenario we shed our you know physical needs and we come in and we say that we will be all these things that we know tomorrow we will have a hard time being but in that moment when the mother says I want to do that for you she means it and that moment is true. And that moment is real. And those Yom Kippur's, when we say that, even knowing tomorrow will be hard, they are real. We mean them. They're true. And they end up being the, the, what helps us, propels us into that slow movement, into that higher self. So I guess the reason I'm sharing this is to, to say, to trust that, there, that your, your power is more than your brokenness and that your power is even more powerful because of your brokenness to trust in that self you have a lot more impact already than you think you have in a good way and I just give us a collective bracha that we see our true selves we see who we're meant to be and that we see ourselves the way God sees us and and, and the way that we're meant to see ourselves and that our happiness and our connection is enhanced through that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for learning with us.
6: Thank you.
1: Dr. Akiva, the floor is yours.
2: Very very short. I am always so, again, not always. This is the second time I'm here and it's such a humbling experience each time, Uh, possibly more so than even the first. Um, I do wanna say, and this is not, where I wanted my closing remarks to be, but I'd rather, I'd like for them to go into this direction that I've, I've learned a lot from my clients and this is how we started. They taught me everything about what it means to, to attempt to live wholesomely, to attempt to live fearlessly and, and look at yourself in the mirror. And it's something that we did a few years ago, we put a mirror in the office because one thing I've discovered is that people who hurt on a regular basis, They are afraid to see their own reflection. So it's something that I could use sometimes and say, listen, you could turn around and look and tell me what you see. And behind all the tears, behind all of that, is a sense of humanity that begins to emerge, that they could begin at times for the first time to to see themselves the way, like my wife was saying, the way that, that, that the people of the world that are looking to see them in a positive way will, and certainly the way that Hashem sees us. But, but truth be told, the people who have taught me the most in this world have really been my children. And I didn't know that, and I, I'm not doing this to embarrass anyone, God forbid, <laughs> but I did not know that my son would be on. I have a son who is 18 years old, going to yeshiva in Eretz Israel. <laughs> and I, I just want him to know that of all people in the world, uh, him and his siblings have taught me the most about what it means to be human. What it means to be alive and fragile and make mistakes and I just want to thank him for teaching me what it means to be alive and what it means to be a parent and you permit me to become a better version of myself and I hope with Hashem's help I could permit you to become a better version of yourself as well even though I love you and you're perfect the way you are but I just want to thank you for the humanity and humility that you've provided me and your mother with and the joy of seeing you in this space alongside us uh, is immeasurable. So those are my final words. Beautiful. Uh,
1: Thank you, Dr. proman and Dr. proman Tonight was off the charts. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next Sunday, same time.